Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome aboard. Coming to you still from the great state of Florida, now on the West Coast, over here by Tampa in the St. Pete area, and staying with the older bro, Sven. Yeah. Hopefully, we're going to nail him down, talk a little America's Cup. Not so much the racing of it, but the entire theme of it. That one's uh, coming up. I'm waiting in the wings for a time where he is in the perfect mood to be able to do that. But today, I thought uh, it would be pretty good to answer a quick question that I got. And it was about preparations and training and all that sort of stuff for long distance voyaging solo on a sailboat. And I know I've talked a little bit about sort of the things that I did to get myself ready and prepared for a trip uh, of the magnitude, you know, of going around the world. And uh, essentially, you know, I, I, I spent a good amount of time down in the Caribbean doing some island hopping, uh, which I believe I've talked about on the show. We'll, we'll touch on it a little bit, but the final sort of challenge that I set for myself was to do uh, a month-long trip out into the Atlantic, pretty much just to get a little check mark on the old, uh, the old mental capabilities of being alone at sea for a month, and, and also, you know, some still more training with the boat and getting things ready and and all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> so that's what I'm going to get into today. It should be should be not the longest podcast, but uh, you know, hopefully informative. We'll just talk about what happened out there and some of the stuff that I realized and some of the stuff, uh, some old school technology that came in quite handy. So that was pretty cool. But before we start the show, like I always say, if you want to help support the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast and possible future adventures aboard Mighty Sparrow, Consider following the link in the episode description uh, to become part of the Patreon family and uh, help out with uh, basically the cost of adventure. It's not cheap. I need new sales. And that's what we're working towards right now. And uh, every little bit helps. So huge, huge thanks to everybody that's been with me and uh, new additions as well. I really, really appreciate it. Even if it's just for a month at a time, it's awesome. Uh, it definitely helps. And I, I do provide a couple other links for Venmo and PayPal just uh, because I know not everybody wants to do a full subscription or anything like that. So much, much appreciated as we're coming into the last month of the year. Uh, for those who have been with us for not only this year, but last year as well. Huge thanks. Big, big, big thanks. Um, other than that, if you want to support by, you know, picking up a shirt or a hoodie, we've got the link in the description for uh, for all that sort of stuff as well. And they are selling those zip-up hoodies just for the rest of this month. And then I think they're going to cut me off which sucks because I really like those. Uh, I actually ordered like three of them because I do like the zip up hoodie. Um, other than that, we do have a little bit of an announcement. Uh, I was able to get the first of the children's books out for Sailing Into Oblivion. Uh, very, very cool. Kind of an idea just came up and I had some time. So 
uh, found an illustrator and went to town on it. And finally, it's come to fruition. So on Amazon, I'll put the link in the description, but uh, we have the the children's book available via Kindle, uh, that version. And then we also have the paperback available. And there's going to be six of them total uh, once we finish up. But I've got the first one out. And then as soon as I get the next illustrations, hopefully we'll put the second and third one out in the coming weeks. And then uh, hopefully by March maybe or something, we'll have all six out and finished and available uh, not only in paperback but uh, possibly a condensed version where all all books are in one big hardbound thing uh, or two. We'll, we'll have to sort of see. But those are going to be available. Link in the description there. And uh, other than that, if you have any questions or comments or anything like that, obviously you can go to sailingintooblivion.com and follow the podcast button, contact the show, and those go directly to me. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you all for so much support over the years. And I can't believe we're about to roll over into 2024, but it's been a ride. And we still have, I've got some pre-recorded podcasts that are going to come out that are pretty cool. And uh, so hopefully we'll we'll stay on this schedule of doing two a week. we're going to see if that's something viable for 2024 or if we drop down to one a week, but we'll come to that mountain when we come to it. Or we'll, we'll, we'll climb that mountain when we come to it? Yeah, one of those things. But anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy the show and thanks for listening. All right. So the year was 2017. The month was April. Sometime around the beginning of April, uh, I was currently down in the British Virgin Islands, hunkered down in North Sound, a um, place that I know very, very well, having worked at the Bitter End Yacht Club. Shout out Bitter End. Love that place. Thank goodness it's back and open. Uh, chilling out, basically doing a lot of training because within a matter of months, I would be setting sail uh, for the round the world trip. And one of the things that I wanted to do before I left for Maine, where I would do the final refit and provisioning for the adventure uh, of a lifetime, if you will. I was looking to do one extended sail solo out into the Atlantic. And I had grand plans uh, that definitely were not going to come to fruition when I actually look at the distances. Um, But essentially, my game plan at that time was to sail north from the Virgin Islands to Bermuda or so, hook into some westerly winds, some uh, southern edge of low-pressure systems to try and get all the way across the Atlantic to the Cape Verde Islands, and then drop back down uh, a little bit into the trades and head back to the Caribbean from there. Now, when I plotted that out, it looked sort of feasible. It could have been a one- or two-month trip, but... The actual distances and everything definitely were, were not going to add up uh, unless you had absolutely perfect weather. So I was sort of under the impression that, yeah, we'll give this a shot. Uh, but bare minimum, the goal was to spend one month out at sea to sort of test the mental faculties, what that was like. Up until this point, I had only solo sailed, I think five days was the longest trip. And that was kind of a a rocky road from the British Virgin Islands, uh, headed down towards Grenada. We went through some pretty bad weather and ended up having to pull back in and go kind of to the north uh, a little bit to St. Lucia. 
where I could do some repairs because I had basically the the ocean had found weakness uh, as it often does in a few unplugged holes that were sort of all over the boat. I will never forget. I'm sitting there and I, I'm sitting at the nav station and I'm looking at and I'm watching water literally drip into the nav station area. <laughs> I'm kind of looking at it like, whoa, whoa, what's that? And I grab a towel and I sort of blot it. And then I'm looking through the porthole and I, I see a pen size hole. Like you could stick almost like the end of a pen into it that had, I think been, uh, it was probably plugged with some sort of silicone. Um, and that's it. And obviously the silicone had popped out and now there was a hole, uh, unfortunately directly over where I had mounted the AIS and the chart plotter. Uh, and all that sort of stuff. So it was kind of one of those situations where, yeah, well, I needed to head to land because it was going to be rough for a little while. Inevitably, though, I, I make it in there. I did some repairs and, and got some things fixed and all that sort of stuff. St. Lucia is just was a beautiful place. Pulling into Rodney Bay under, you know, no light, dead of night. It was like 2, 3 in the morning, exhausted, anchoring. And then going checking in customs the next day it was actually uh, it was pretty cool. Um, that island is one that I definitely would like to return to for sure. The pitons of these very very quick clips on a very shaky old school camera uh, sailing in towards the pitons with Sparrow back when she had the old wooden decks and all that sort of stuff. And man, it was oh uh, it was beautiful. I. Uh, those are those fond memories. And you know, the funny thing is there, there's a bit of like selfie action going on there too. And you look at yourself, you know, seven, eight years ago. <laughs> it's like when you get to my age, it's sort of like, whoa, the curve is getting a little steep as far as uh, what the world's doing to you <clears throat> and how you're handling it, I suppose. But in any event, you know, we got to celebrate our younger, our younger years and, and it's, uh, uh, if you're if if you're younger than I am and you're listening to this, just take advantage of it because when it disappears, it starts to disappear very rapidly. Besides the point, um, you know, we had done a few trips and sailed quite a bit. You know, I had come down to the Caribbean with my father. Uh, we we sailed the inaugural or I don't know if that's the right word, but the first the sea trial sail from West Palm Beach down to the BVI. Lost the engine after a couple of days, uh, ran into electrical issues, pretty much dealt with anything and everything, sales splitting everything, the rigging coming loose. It was uh, it was a really good sea trial. Uh, a little bit dangerous to do it that way, but you know it's a wet sail, so we were pretty confident in its ability. <clears throat> but essentially, uh, you know, after after spending January, February, and March doing inner island sails, fixing the boat, breaking the boat, fixing the boat. Then it was time to sort of step up to the plate and do a month out at sea. And again, my plan was north towards Bermuda, over towards the Cape Verdes, and then back down. And initially I thought there was a chance that I could actually sight the Cape Verdes. I'm all about that, you know. I love seeing islands come from rise out of the horizon on an ocean setting after weeks at sea. There's something uh, very magical about that, but... In the end, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, but I do remember a, a lovely, lovely few days in light to moderate conditions sailing due north and heading up towards Bermuda. That was the first waypoint. And I figured, you know, I'd hook into one of these these low-pressure systems that are 
cruising off of the uh, coast of Hatteras and, and making their way out. And you get those nice westerly winds to sort of carry you. And I, I'm watching. I remember watching the weather. And I'm testing out all these systems. And, and I'm seeing a big weather system coming. And I'm like, oh, I'm just like a day or two away from getting up there and hooking in. But I see that it's moving off. And it's like right there. And I remember being in these calm, calm conditions and barely moving, just enough to keep the sails full, doing like two and a half knots, something like that. I could have probably fired up the engine, but I also knew that, you know, hey, we're out here for the long haul, so to speak. And you really have to make sure you you don't you don't just use up all your resources uh, in a stupid attempt to try and hook into a system. And we're sort of crawling. And I, the one thing I do remember about that time was just kind of looking at, looking at the world around me and how beautiful it was because it was, it was very calm, but we were still able to move. And I remember it being one of those times where it, it got cooler and cooler temperature wise as I got further North and I went from, you know, no shirt and boxers to a t-shirt and boardies to my foul weather gear as we approached closer and closer to Bermuda. But essentially I was I was chasing this low and I could not catch it. It was just out of reach. Just when I thought, okay, you know, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm gonna be the wind is gonna build. I'm gonna catch the tail edge of this thing and I'm gonna stick with it because it's not moving very fast. And those dreams sort of just kept, they were just out of reach the whole time. And it was light, light wind. And then essentially when I got up there and this weather system just sort of uh, escaped from me, it ran away from me. I was stuck in that Bermuda High, the Azores High, Bermuda High area. And it was just becalmed. And I'm just sort of lying there flat and trying to figure out what to do. And I remember the easterly trades sort of, I don't know if they were the trades technically, but we, we had some easterlies come in and I started sort of beating into that. And I was like, well, let's go north. Uh, let's head towards the northeast and we'll we'll see the next system that comes in. Maybe we'll hook into that. And, and you know, the waves and everything started sort of picking up a bit. Not much, but just enough to make it uncomfortable and sort of slow. And so... One of the things that I've I've always learned to do in in a boat like a west sail that that bounces off the waves <clears throat> is basically peel away, and instead of heading at you know fifty degrees off the wind, you know you're heading more like seventy degrees off the wind. But then you sort of take into account leeway and all that sort of stuff, and now all of a sudden it's it's kind of like you're like man, I, all I can do is just reach into these these sort of steep little choppy waves, and now I'm heading basically due north again. And that's uh, not the direction that I wanted to go because as I'm counting off the days, you know, I'd been out, it was about a thousand miles or so, or 800 miles, let's say. And essentially, uh, you know, so it's a week, 10 days, light wind sailing. And I, I, I only have a certain amount of time because the idea is to get back to the BVI by mid-May, prep, get the boat ready for the offshore trip from the BVI back up to Maine to refit the boat. And I wanted to do that starting, you know, at the end of May, beginning of June. So I did have sort of a, a bit of a time frame. Now, all of that got thrown right out the window uh, eventually because after a few days of sort of chasing the idea of getting 
essentially across the Atlantic almost and then back, um, I started thinking to myself, you know, well, what am I doing here? Why, 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 why aim at some destination that I'm probably not going to make anyway? Let's just sail this boat. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, let's let's just sail this boat. And I ended up heading south because I wanted a little bit more warm weather. And during that time, we did catch a little bit. I want to say the wind started coming out of the northwest a little bit. And so I started broad reaching my way out into the Atlantic proper and was able to do that for about five or six days. And so now I'm getting way out there. Um, I'm, I'm a good uh, five, six, seven hundred miles east of Bermuda at this point, uh, well north of the Caribbean. And I'm positioned in this great little area where if I dip south, I'm going to catch those easterly trades and I can reach my way straight down to the Caribbean. Um, I can actually broad reach at that point because I was so far to the east. And then, you know, I, I basically had a lot of options. And I remember one day in particular taking, uh, I, I don't know how you must have been 12 hours or something and just doing spinnaker work. Um, I had an asymmetrical at that point. I put that up and there was this rolling heavy swell that was coming from, I think the Northeast. No, no, no. It was coming from, I think it was coming from due North and it was ancient, ancient swell. So there's huge, huge wave period in between them. And, you know, if you weren't looking for them, you wouldn't even notice they were sort of there, but had a great time sort of surfing those, um, not surfing like you would think of, but, but getting pushed along by them with an asymmetrical up and just really enjoying the sailing all together. And, uh, it was just sort of this magical day. And it was the first day that I, I think I ever wasn't headed at a certain destination, you know, you always, whenever you're going out to sea, there's, there's, there's where you start from and then there's where you're going. And that's, that's sort of par for the course, if you will. It's just always there. You're doing that. And if you're not making, if you're not making progress towards the end, it's like, you're not, you're not doing it right. But with this one, because I was just looking more, more and more, I was looking for time out at sea. I kind of had the freedom to scuff the I, I still didn't even really have a passage plan I knew I had to leave the BVI um, and I think when I left I did tell them I was going to Dominica uh, and then uh, so that was sort of sort of the uh, the idea but I really didn't have have much of a clue but after riding uh, and, and essentially just backtracking quite a ways down south uh, the winds fell soft again and I had had this tiny little issue. Uh, my the the GPS on that boat came with this old chart plotter, this old Standard Horizon thing, and it came with a fish finder, and it had a little transponder thing underneath and everything, and or a transducer, and that had in the past leaked a little bit, barely anything. Now it was actually starting to leak a decent amount. Um, Nothing to be concerned about by any any stretch of the imagination, but a, a definite flow of probably, if I had to estimate it, one to two gallons every 24 hours. So a very, very slight trickle, but still a little unnerving. Anytime water is coming in from a place that it's not supposed to be coming in from, it's always a little unnerving. And 
I can remember thinking like, ah, man, there's really not much I can do. And I, I knew that if you try and apply any sort of sealants and things like that from inside the boat, the water pressure, it's just going to push it out. There's nothing. I mean, this is like the depths of, it was like just up in one of the closets, um, kind of not all the way at the bottom of the keel, obviously, but not, not all the way up at the water line. So there's a bit of pressure on it and everything. And, and for a while I just thought, you know, no worries. I ended up drilling a small hole so the water would at least funnel straight into the bilge and not go into the cabin sole. Uh, but that's really not good enough. And I do remember at that time I was reading or peeling through for the first or second time sailing to the reefs uh, by Bernard Mortissier. And one of the things that he talked about in that voyage was, or in his many voyages on that in that book, <clears throat> was that when he found holes in the bottom of the boat and he was dealing with wooden boats, one of the things to do was essentially get a bunch of sawdust put it in a bag and then swim down underneath and rub it around the area where the hole is because as those wood particles get sort of sucked into the hole through the water pressure, as they saturate, then they're going to swell up and they plug the hole. And I mean, you know, I'm out there and, and there was there was one day where I was fully concentrating on this problem because I was becalmed. And when you're becalmed, that's pretty much all you can do is you know, you can either sit there and, and be mad at the fact that you're not sailing or you can sit there and listen to the stores shifting around, making a lot of racket. Um, sometimes I can handle it. and I'm like, yeah, this is actually pretty beautiful. It usually depends on on the the rolling of the boat and how how big the swell are that are still, you know, pushing the boat around. There, there's been times where the boat almost feels like it's sitting at a dock. And those are times for celebration. If you're if you're becalmed in that kind of condition, oh my God, it's great. It's absolutely. I mean, you're you're just surrounded by horizon and sky, and this this water is just flat. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. But in this case, I had this problem in my hands, and you know, I'm I'm taking basically every issue that comes at me as something like, okay, well, what if this is happening? You know down in the Southern Ocean, or what if this is happening, you know, day four on the trip, and I've got another 29,000 miles to go, that sort of thing. That, that was, I was, you know, I, my head was in the game. I, I, I wanted to find issues, I wanted to discover weakness, and I wanted to fix it as if I was out at sea sort of permanently. And um, so essentially I went and I grabbed a saw, and I grabbed uh, some spare wood, and I made a whole pile of sawdust, and I thought to myself, well, okay, is there any other thing that I can do? And so what I did uh, was I got the sawdust and put that in one bag. And then I took a little corner of a plastic bag and I squirted a whole bunch of 5200 in that. And essentially the plan was to do something, do exactly what Motissi had done, but with a, you know, uh, 21st century spin. So essentially go down, get the sawdust in there and I'm just using a snorkel and mask and obviously no sails up, but I swim down and I rub that all around and all around and all around. And then I go back down with that little tube and I take that and I just start to squirt that all over and I kind of rub it in. I don't even know to this day if it actually adhered to anything. Uh, I'm pretty sure I remember pulling some of it off of the boat when we hauled it out up in Maine, uh, you know, a couple months later. 
but essentially, once once I sort of finished that detail, I got back up on the boat and I sort of watched. And in the beginning, yeah, nothing really happened. Um, the water was still coming in. By that night, there was no more water coming in. It had completely dried it up. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, obviously, spare is a fiberglass boat, um, but the science was sound. A little bit of wood, because it swells, you know, it's obviously going to get sucked into that little hole. And Bob's your uncle, there you go. It actually worked. And I remember being pretty shocked and thinking to myself, man, you know, this this ancient sort of knowledge, I know it's not ancient by any means, but this this old school knowledge actually comes in uh, quite handy uh, with some modern day issues. And you know, when we hauled the boat out in the end, obviously with my my brother Adam, he we ended up rebedding that whole thing, and it's never leaked since or anything like that. But it was uh, I don't know, it was it was a bit of a confidence builder at that time because even though the leak wasn't severe enough, you know, you put yourself in the position of okay, well we're going to be out here for four, five, six, seven more months. Having a leak on a boat like that is not a good thing. You know, the water is going to slowly start saturating in. Um, you know, it's, it's something that you, you want to be able to stop. So all of a sudden it gave me this little bit of a tool, so to speak, uh, to combat that situation. And I don't know, it was kind of a turning point for that because soon after it seemed like the trade winds sort of filled in. I had made my way south pretty far and did sort of a a big dip down towards the Caribbean, uh, ended up doing a bunch more downwind sailing. I think I reached as far south as Grenada almost, well offshore though, well to the east, um, just to sort of fill in the time. And, you know, as I slowly started running out of the, the good food, the ham, the cheese, the bread, all that sort of stuff, eggs, bacon. Uh, I did have a, a, one of the greatest bacon surprises of my life. Um, I was dead certain that I had purchased two pounds of bacon. And essentially I have one of those little Frigo boat. Uh, it's kind of like what you would find in a college dorm, you know, uh, little refrigerator. It's like a little oval sort of thing where you could put, you know, things you want to freeze. There's a little trap door on it. And that's in my, uh, modified ice, uh, ice box on Sparrow. And normally what I do for any sort of long passage is I will chalk that full. I'll, I'll take things like, you know, those big, um, or not big, but cut, you know, pound ham chunks and I'll take bacon and turkey and stuff like that. And I'll freeze it in an actual freezer. So it's just rock solid. And then I cram all that into that freezer and crank it up so that it stays, you know, absolutely frozen. And I'll work my way through that. And um, I remember getting through to a bunch of it. And during that time, because I was in the tropics, the, the fridge was just cranked. There was just no reason not to. The, the solar panels were just making so much electricity. It just didn't matter. And uh, when my fridge does that, because it's not super insulated or anything like that, essentially you get a lot of frost buildup. And I'd gone through the bacon and I remember like looking around because I had saved it for a little while. And I was just like, man, I can't believe I ate all the bacon that fast. And, you know, making like breakfast burritos and all that sort of stuff. There's some bacon, so it's not all that special. I'm trying to substitute with ham and turkey and it's just not the same. And then I got to the point where... Uh, I pulled the last 
like cube of, of ham out of the freezer. So now there's no longer really anything in there, just a big frost buildup. And, uh, so I kind of ease back on the refrigerator and go from like setting seven, I think down to like four. And so it starts to defrost a little bit. And I can remember in the, that, that evening, uh, going in there to make ice for the sundowner time. And I, I, what I typically do is take a, a Ziploc and I just fill it with water, um, you know, halfway or whatever, and you lay it inside of that freezer and it freezes it up pretty quick. And then you can sort of break it free and then, you know, use the bag again. And essentially, uh, I go to go in there and boom, there's the most glorious, beautiful, untouched pound of bacon, streaky, lovely, thin bacon just waiting like just just there and it was all clear of all the ice and stuff and it was i i just remember like cheering out loud. I was like, yes oh my god there's the bacon and it had essentially gotten frosted in which is why i couldn't find it it was those little victories because now all of a sudden i had not only eggs and still some potatoes and things like that but then it was like all right let's do this and i don't think i cooked a breakfast burrito that night but the next morning like I, I, I literally was having trouble sleeping because I was so excited about breakfast the next day. And uh, yeah, they got pretty fancy and in-depth after that. Hash browns, all sorts of stuff. So it was, uh, oh, that was a welcome surprise. Um, but in the end, yeah, I, I started to make my way down. And after about three weeks, uh, about 21 days or so out at sea, I found myself to be I think it was about 800, 800 miles or so, maybe a little less from the Caribbean uh, in general. And it was going to be a broad reach heading down there that I was definitely well in the trade winds. And I sort of thought, you know, I don't know what I want to do here. Um, made it this far. I'm definitely still feeling mentally very sound. Uh wasn't having any real issues with the boat or with sleeping and all that sort of stuff. So I was, I was feeling kind of yeah, pretty much all good. And so we just raced off towards Dominica and broad reaching with, you know, 18 to 20 knots, trade wind sailing, decent sized waves. As you get far enough south, you, you know, you get into it and that fetch, you know, that, that wind belt has been going all the way from Africa essentially. So uh, that was that was a good time to test and make sure that everything was working well with the wind vane. I had all these different blades, you know, I'd, I'd made them out of all sorts of different materials, fiberglass and different shapes, all that sort of stuff. And this was the old Mongo, Mongo 1. Um, and, you know, just trying stuff out and messing with it. And, and I, one of the things I do remember is that we ripped through the control lines, something fierce. And, you know, with an Aries wind vane, those control lines are right there on the deck. They're visible. There's, you know, a couple of blocks that they go through and then they go right to the tiller. And uh, I was actually doing a little bit of research today because the upcoming delivery, we have a, a Cape Horn. And a Cape Horn, the control lines and everything go through a stainless cylinder that then goes into the hull of the boat. And I think the Cape Horn... Um, Obviously, it's going to be set up differently for a tiller-driven boat, but I believe this vessel that we're that I'm hopping on is uh, wheel-driven, and so essentially these lines are going to the quadrant. And I watched this video today, and I'm looking at it, and there were so many blocks. 
to hook this thing up to this quadrant. And I, all I could think of is one, it was in a really tight space because it's, you know, underneath the the pedestal where the wheel is and you've got the rudder shaft and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm just thinking to myself, man, you know, I've seen how much these lines chafe through that are under constant motion. Um, but I feel like with the Cape Horn, you're probably going to use something. I mean, I was able to use any lines I wanted. It really didn't matter. You know, you didn't want them to stretch much. So it was basically jacketed, uh, stay set or something like that. And I would grease it and that would extend the life of it. And then I would also shift it quite a bit. But with this system, the only thing that I'm curious about is like, how easy is it to access that area? Um, so interesting. It, it'll be cool. I mean, I've used the, I've used the Aries, obviously. Uh, I've used the Hydrovane. The one I haven't is the Monitor, and I have not used the Cape Horn, but I'm very interested to see how that all works. And I'm kicking myself now because when I was down in South Carolina, my good friend Scott, he, uh, you know, he has the Cape Horn set up on on his West Sail, and we never uh, we never got out there to test it. And uh, kicking myself now because it would have been really interesting to see how that one works, but. Anyway, off into the weeds I go. Here we go, coming back. Um, eventually, then, we, we just blasted, and we had some of the fastest, funnest sailing. Um, you know, it was like the tail end stretch of this little adventure. And on day 26, I remember pulling into Dominica, and it was always it was pretty funny because uh, I always go into uh, Portsmouth, which is up on the northwestern side of the country, and it's just a big half-moon-shaped cove. And it's not really super protected from the north. Uh, swell, at least where I anchor, which is over on the south side of this cove. Uh, all the other boats that are on moorings and all that sort of stuff, they're way tucked in on the north uh, east side. But I'm down there with my my friends. Uh, shout out to Burgess at the Tiki Bar, and then shout out to Eustace with the uh, Water Sports Center and his bar. In any event, um, yeah, I pulled in there, went to Customs, and it was pretty funny because they, I remember them. They were like, so where'd you leave from? And I was like, I left from BVI. And the BVI is only three-day sail, even for Mighty Sparrow from Dominica. And they were like, what day did you leave? And they thought I'd made a mistake. But essentially, it was a 26-day passage from the BVI to Dominica. Uh, as the crow flies, about 350 miles or so. Uh, but as we sailed, I believe, I want to say it was 2,500 miles Maybe it was a little closer to 3,000 total um, for that trip. I don't have my charts here, obviously, but uh, it was a good it was a good way to test in what I consider to be a pretty safe manner, you know, south of the big storms, um, well out of the hurricane season. You know, it was a mental challenge. It was it was you know, how am I going to react not five days into an offshore voyage? by myself for the first time, but 10 days and 15 days and 20 days and 25 days. Um, because at the, at there really wasn't the turnaround point until I hit three weeks. So essentially I still had time and I thought, you know, maybe if all's going well, I'm just gonna stay out here and then I'm going to just go for go for go going back to the Caribbean and then just carry right on up to Maine, uh, which would have made it probably like a 40, 45 day trip, something like that. So that option was still in my head and kind of, um, so there wasn't the idea of like, Oh, I just go out and after two weeks now I'm heading back. So I have that in my head. Cause what I was looking for was that, that feeling of, 
you know, who knows when you're going to be back, you know, because that's that's sort of uh, the pressure and the scenario you end up in when you do these really big trips where you're going down, you know, to the great south and stuff. You you know you're in it for a long, long time. Like it's not even worth thinking about anything past the current ocean you're in because it's just so far away it'll 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 just give you chills. So you just sort of keep plugging away, plugging away day by day, but day by day. And that that worked out pretty well. It was a good little training exercise for you know the really really long haul and i would recommend that if somebody you know even wanted to just do you know trip across the atlantic or something like that or uh any trip that's going to be a month or more um and you're trying to just you know you want to see like uh is this something i enjoy is this something possible um mentally is it something that i'm capable of doing uh if you're down in the caribbean it's a great spot to Head north, hook into a little bit of westerly, go out into the Atlantic, then come back down and then head with the winds back to the Caribbean. Because you can you can essentially do, if you've got the time and it's the right season, you you have all the, the time, the sea room and weather to be able to stay out there for probably two months if you wanted to and and be in a relatively safe zone in the world's oceans where yeah you're gonna see a little bit of ugly weather you're gonna get some squalls you're gonna deal with some stuff um but the idea of going through you know a three-day force 10 gale is pretty pretty minimal the the percentage of that happening down in that part of the area or that part of the world would be pretty pretty slim so Anyway, that was kind of all I wanted to share with everybody today on this beautiful Christmas week. Um, spending a lot of time with family, which is nice. I've spent a couple of Christmases out on the ocean in my life. And uh, as romantic as that sometimes can seem, it's actually just a lonely time. And you spend most of it just thinking about all the loved ones that are sitting around with each other while you are cold and wet out on the ocean. So it's not quite as great as uh, some of the books make it out to be. But um, in any event, there are some solo sailors out there racing, um, and they're out there. They're going to be alone coming up, and so keep them in your thoughts. Hopefully, they they make it through safe. Some of them are, are headed just down south of Australia, and they're in the Southern Ocean, so they're in the danger zone. So keep them in your keep them in your thoughts, if you will. <laughs> 